This is the Bird Hugger Podcast with Katherine Greenleaf, the podcast for people who love birds. Welcome to the Bird Hugger Podcast. I'm Katherine Greenleaf, and I'm so glad to be with you. I'm on board for a full 30 minutes of talking all things birds and restoring native habitat. What happens when a burnt-out college professor living in New England decides to become a wildlife rescuer and rehabilitator? Find out on Bird Hugger, the podcast for people who love birds. Join host Katherine Greenleaf, who has been rehabilitating injured wildlife for 20 years, and hear how you can turn your backyard into a native oasis for birds. Hello, everyone. Well, believe it or not, here we are at the end of another year and the end of season three of the Bird Hugger podcast. During season three, we touched on a lot of important topics affecting birds, and we also took a close look at some very interesting bird species. We talked about the elusive nighthawk and the resilient great blue heron. We talked about evening grosbeaks, loons, penguins, and eastern bluebirds. We touched on the important topics of rainwater harvesting in the backyard and protecting rare native plant species in the wild. We even talked about bird shamanism and the spiritual connection we can all share with birds. We also joined an important and exciting research project tracking the migration of broadwing hawks down to South America. It has been quite a year, and as we draw things to a close for 2022, I just want to express my heartfelt thanks and gratitude to you, our listeners. Your support and feedback are helping to shape this show and determine the direction it goes in. With that in mind, the lineup of shows for 2023 is already gearing up and looking great. I am so looking forward to another year of talking about birds and the issues that impact them. And I'm wishing each and every one of you a wonderful new year. Stay tuned. We've got a lot more for you coming right up. If you are enjoying this show and like what we do, please help us out by subscribing or following us on your favorite app to access our free show. That way you'll get notified of what's coming, you'll never miss a show, and it will help us in the ratings. And now I'm happy to introduce Kim Ironman to the show. Kim is the author of the very popular book, The Pollinator Victory Garden. Kim has a lot to say about the way Americans can help pollinators by just doing a few simple things in their backyards. Okay, and now I'd like to introduce Kim Ironman to the show. Kim, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you so much, Catherine. It's my pleasure to be here. I just love your book. Basically, I could not put it down. There have been a lot of books written recently about native plants and native pollinators, but you seem to go the extra mile. There was a lot of extra information, and I'm hoping we can maybe get to some of that today during the interview. Now, you refer to lawns in your book as a vast green pollinator desert or an yep. ecological wasteland. Yep. Um, Absolutely. That is something that I uh, really, truly believe that our green deserts have got to go. So my suggestion is keep the lawn, the turf grass that you really, really need, that you actually use. If your kids are playing on it, you're entertaining on it, you're playing volleyball, whatever it is that you really need, fine, keep it. Manage it organically. That's a big part of it but convert the rest to native plantings that support the ecosystems that um, we have in our own landscapes that often we just don't pay that much attention to. 
Now, tell me, what do you think it will take for Americans to see how badly their help is needed to save pollinators? Well, it's kind of painful to see where we are now and how much information has been available to us for decades. Just understanding like the situation that we're in and the inaction is um, has been very painful to watch. I mean, one of my you know heroes, environmental heroes, is Bill McGibbon. I mean, he's been talking about you know our planet and the state of the planet for over thirty five years, and what does it take? I think it takes modeling. I think it takes showing folks how to do this. I think it takes some new blood too. These last several pandemic years, I don't know what year we are in of the pandemic. I'm counting it two going into three, but for these last years, I've seen an enormous number of uh, younger folks in their 30s moving out of Cities around me, namely New York City, I'm, I'm based in uh, Westchester County, New York, really close to New York City, but I also work in Connecticut and, and in New Jersey. But I've seen folks that are younger moving to the suburbs and having a different set of values in terms of the lives they want to lead. They want to be green and they have green values, but they don't necessarily know how to translate that into their landscapes. This is very different from folks that have been my kind of my traditional clients of a certain age. A lot of them are enlightened, obviously, but a lot of them aren't. So I think the new blood is really a healthy thing and it's going to help us make the transition faster. But just, you know, when one family does a native plant landscape in your neighborhood, and if they, uh, they're my clients, they probably have a sign that says pollinator landscape or no pesticides or a wildlife habitat or something. But when one family models that behavior and and the amount of life in their landscape alters dramatically for the better, people pay attention. And I think it's infectious. It's exciting and it's infectious. And there's some movements uh, going on now that are really, really powerful, like the um, pollinator pathway movement. Over 12 states have embraced this concept of creating pollinator habitat in residential landscapes, municipal landscapes, commercial landscapes, and so on, getting on the pathway, actually getting on the map and doing the things that one needs to do to support pollinators and other creatures in your landscape. So they've got a website that's just terrific. And I actually mentioned them in my book, along with other really terrific initiatives like Bee City USA, a program of the Xerxes Society. My friend started this, gosh, years and years ago, and uh, here it is, just a huge success. So we need to be inspiring those of us who are doing this, we need to be infectious and we need to help people get there. Right. Now, you use the idea of victory gardens from the war effort during the 1940s, <laughs> and it seemed to be something back then that really boosted morale for everyone back home during yeah. the war. We could use a little morale boosting right about now, don't you think, between COVID uh, and climate I, change? I think and so. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. This was a movement actually started in World War One and continued into World War Two, and was not exclusive to North America, interestingly. But just in North America alone in World War Two, there were over 20 million households that were gardening for food defense. So 
you know, always trying to think how we get this concept across to the average homeowner, average person who has a landscape. It's time that we come to the defense of our pollinators that are in extreme decline. And it's not just pollinators. It's all vertebrates and invertebrates. Just recently, the new Living Planet Index study was uh, released showing a uh, decline in vertebrate species since 1970 of 69%. And that's just vertebrates. Invertebrate statistics don't look any better. So we've got to take action if we're going to have a planet to live on. Right. Now, of course, with World War One and World War Two, that was in the time before television. How mm-hmm. do you help people undo the years and years of television marketing that has conditioned all of us basically to think of pollinators as pests? Right. And of course, needing to treat our lawns with a 12-step program, <laughs> which always cracks me <laughs> up, all these horrendous products that you must buy if you want a healthy landscape. That's perfect. Well, there's a quote that's attributed to Voltaire, but I understand through my reading that he actually kind of lifted it from 100 years prior to his time. The quote is, perfect is the enemy of good. And yeah, we're not perfect as human beings and our landscapes don't have to be either. And this is a really tough nut to crack with homeowners. They have this idea that we've got to have these big, beautiful lawns that are perfect, the green desert, that shrubs have to be pruned to meat balls that nature can't recognize or utilize. And, you know, while they're pruning these things are typically cutting off flowers and any potential fruit or seeds that might be developing and a real obsession with having everything evergreen. I found this particularly problematic. You know, we've got to have these evergreen walls around our homes, around the property line, next to the foundation. We've got to start thinking differently and understanding what plants do, not just how they look. Right. Now, it seems there there was more than just TV marketing going on. I can remember in the early 2000s, there were a lot of campaigns by concerned people about saving the honeybee. Now, of course, you know, mm. the honeybee is not native to the U.S., no. yet it still has great commercial value as far as food crops go. But, you know, it really wasn't until 2008, 2009, 2010 that you started to hear there was such a thing as a native bee. And the situation they were in. So what, in your opinion, do you think caused native bees to go unrecognized for so long? Well, it's all about money, right? So the money was in agriculture. There was a complete lack of understanding that prior to 400 years ago, when honeybees were first introduced to Jamestown, Virginia, I think 1622 to be precise, by colonists, they brought honeybees and bull mastiffs and peacocks and a lot of European weeds and all sorts of stuff. Those creatures, honeybees, are very, very different from our native bees. But guess what? What were the bees doing pollination services before 1622 in North America? (laughs) It was our native bees. You know, we have over, it's thought, 4,000 or so bee species that are native in North America. About 10% of those aren't even yet named, which is really kind of crazy. You know, the focus on honeybees was driven by agriculture, you know, agricultural extensions, you know, your local agricultural extension years back, they were only doing research and only providing support for honeybees, right? And to the detriment of native bees that people didn't even know what their native bees were. And, you know, if they came across a bumblebee or a carpenter bee, they're afraid of them. So I think we're in a much different place now. And fortunately, that's the case. But 
we have a lack, a real dearth of research on our own native bees going back decades, just because we just weren't even paying attention. But, you know, you'll take a look at certain native plants that have evolved with certain native pollinators. And, you know, we all love a good blueberry, at least I do. And we think about our blueberry species, of which there are quite a few commercially. You know, you're probably familiar with highbush blueberry, Vexinium corymbosum, lowbush blueberry, Vexinium angustifolium. There are other species as well. But the best pollinators of that particular genus, uh, those vacciniums, the blueberries, are native bees that have a behavior called buzz pollination or sonication, whereby they vibrate their wings and they release a lot of pollen onto themselves from the flower. And then they go to cross-pollinate the next flower and the next plant and so on much more effective. There's some mining bees, uh, bumblebees that we can attribute excellent blueberry pollination to that have this ability. But in agriculture, there are lots of folks that are doing blueberry pollination with honeybees, which is insane. They don't have that ability to be efficient pollinators. They don't have the ability to buzz pollinate. You know, if we really start thinking about what's out there and how different species can be so helpful to us as human beings, if that's what it takes to get people motivated, then we make different choices. Right. Now, you had some things in your book that I haven't seen in other books, one of which is you talk about the length of bee tongues. Can you explain (laughs) what the length of a bee's tongue has to do with picking the right native plants? Because apparently it's a big issue. Yeah. So, You know, first we have to consider how many different types of pollinators that we have, right? And what they can or cannot access, what they've evolved to favor and uh, be able to utilize successfully. So thinking of long tongues, obviously most of us think about hummingbirds, right? Or long beaks, I should say. But, you know, in terms of access, floral access, there's a long way into a lot of the flowers that hummingbirds utilize. In my own landscape right now, there is a native vine honeysuckle, not one of these invasive ones. It's a Linicera sempervirens coral honeysuckle, and that's got a long corolla tube and a long-tongued bee or a hummingbird. They're really good pollinators of that kind of flower. So some bees have short tongues, some have mid-length tongues, some have long tongues, And then we can look at other pollinator types like birds. You've got about 53 species of birds in North America that feed on nectar. And they don't all have uh, the same ability in terms of accessing uh, particular flowers. And then we can look at other pollinators like, say, wasps. We have solitary wasps that often drink nectar in our gardens that have very short tongues. And they really can't access the same kind of plants that, say, a long-tongued bee can. Or, Or a butterfly that has a long proboscis that has kind of a different way of uh, nectaring. It nectars from a distance, uh, typically, and doesn't pollinate quite as effectively with certain plants. And there are always exceptions to all of these things, which makes native plants and native landscapes so fascinating. You know, just when we think we know it all, we find out we really don't. I'll give an example of just assumptions that we make that we find out are incorrect. So I've just talked about butterflies being rather inefficient pollinators because they don't get their bodies all up into the pollen of a plant like, say, a, a bumblebee might. But there was research done by NC State in uh, 2015. That research report was released. The research is on a rare case of wing 
pollination. And in this study, they found that flame azalea, rhododendron calendulaceum, which is more of a southeastern, mid-Atlantic, southeastern plant, they found that the best pollinators of that particular plant are actually swallowtail butterflies. And why is that? Well, here we go again. Swallowtails do something kind of unusual. They happen to um, flap their wings while they're nectaring, and that releases a lot of pollen under their bodies. And then as they cross-pollinate, they're the most efficient pollinators of those plants. So there are just so many fascinating things to learn about pollinators. And if we start paying attention to the creatures that we already have in our landscapes and figure out what are some of the species that we don't have that we should have that are regionally either local, resident, or migratory, then we can start making different choices about how we uh, landscape. But we need a lot of different plants for a lot of different pollinator types. And within even a group like bees, you know, as I've just mentioned, some have long tongues, some have short tongues. Having a, a real diversity of plant material with different flower parts is really helpful to having a diversity of pollinators. Right. And listeners may be surprised to hear that, as you say in your book, that beetles are pollinators. Could you talk about yeah. beetles for a second? Yeah. So, you know, not all beetles are pollinators. Beetles are a huge group of, you know, insects, but we have many species that are pollinators. And they tend to, in most cases, feed on pollen and sometimes on floral parts as well. But yeah, we don't even really think about this until we happen upon some beetles in our landscape that are feeding. Many uh, beetles are specialists on uh, the pollen of particular plants, just like bees. In the case of native bees, it said that, you know, at least 25% of our native bees specialize in the pollen of a particular plant or a group of particular plants. So that's really profound. So if we don't want to lose even more pollinator species, then we have to think about what these specialists need in particular and make sure that we're planting those plants to keep them going. If we don't, we lose the pollinators and we lose the plants. Right. And you also talk about moths in the book, which I kind of think of as yeah. the forgotten pollinator. I think a lot of people yeah. don't realize that they are pollinators because they're mostly nocturnal and people are sleeping while they're doing their pollination. Right. <laughs> so they don't see Well, it. you know, we have some diurnal daytime flying moths like hummingbird moths that are just fascinating. I remember the first time years and years and years ago where I saw a hummingbird moth, I was like, what the heck is that? Couldn't figure out it was a moth. Was it a hummingbird? What? They're absolutely intriguing creatures. But most of our moths are nocturnal. Secret for butterfly lovers, hey, we have way many more moth species in North America than we do butterfly species. But most of us don't even know what they are. So they can be extremely important pollinators and they need floral access at night. Not every plant delivers nectar at night. So being thoughtful about that. And of course, when we're talking about butterflies and moths, always thinking that we need more than a floral buffet. We also need larval host plants for their caterpillars to eat. But moths are really important pollinators. And, you know, if we look at certain species like the silk moth group, so these are um, moths in the caterpillar stage that they get everything they need in terms of nutrition when they're caterpillars. They don't actually develop full-blown mouth parts as adults to feed. So they're not eating. They get everything they need to eat, you know, as caterpillars. So paying really close attention to larval host plants, many of them are woody plants, trees and shrubs and vines, and many of them are perennials as well. But also being thoughtful about that will go a long way in supporting more species. 
you know, we've got a long way to go in terms of research, really understanding which of our native plants are feeding which particular species that are regionally native. We know a lot, but there's a lot we still need to figure out. Now, you have some great information in the book about foraging ranges, and I know that is going along with some new studies showing that you need to grow a certain number of native species in order for pollinators to find them. So could you talk about that? How many, let's say, for example, Monarda, would you need to plant to encourage foraging by a single species of pollinator? So let's think about just ranges first. So some pollinators, like a little tiny bee, might only fly 100 feet in its lifetime which is extraordinary. But some have longer ranges. You know, bumblebee might go a mile or two, but that expends a lot of energy. So keeping resources closer at hand is a good idea. And honeybees, which there are many feral honeybees around us. And if you live near a beekeeper, you probably have a lot of their bees on your property. Well, they can go even farther. They might go three miles, four miles or so on. But again, at the expense of uh, energy loss. So they need to feed more to make up for that. So keeping our nectar and pollen sources close and also connecting with others around us to increase the impact of our landscapes through connectivity is super important. I mean, for many years where I am, I was like the island in the middle of a desert. And that makes it really tough for pollinators just to be reliant on one landscape. And P.S., my landscape is less than a fifth of an acre. I live uh, in Westchester County, New York, 16 miles north of uh, Grand Central Station, to give you a visual. And so the more of us in an area that are doing this, the, the more resources we pump up and the more ability that we have to support pollinators. So how many plants does it take? Well, this is an interesting question. And you know, the best research that I've seen came out of the um, University of California, Berkeley Bee Lab. And they found that a one square meter of a single plant species worked pretty well for bees in particular. So think about that. We want to create targets for pollinators that are of a decent size. But we also want to think about diversity of species for the reasons I've just described. What may be very appealing, for example, to a hummingbird, red tubular flower is really pretty useless to, say, a bumblebee. Now, bumblebees and other bees, they see on a different spectrum than we humans do. They see on a UV spectrum, and they really can't make out the color red very well, particularly against green. So a Monarda didyma, speaking of Monardas, a scarlet bee balm, is a great hummingbird plant, not so great as a bee plant. That combination of having sufficiency of a particular species, but diversity of species, is what I call achieving floral balance. And it's challenging in small landscapes, but, you know, I live in a pretty small landscape and, you know, things are going pretty well here for me and the pollinators. So I think we can all do a pretty good job if we give it a try. And if our landscapes are really small, partner with your neighbors around you to create more pollinator habitat. But even in the tiniest of landscapes, my rule of thumb is, I mean, and we're talking like backyard Brooklyn. If I have a client with a tiny little landscape, my rule of thumb is have at least three different species of plants that are attractive to pollinators, preferably different types of pollinators, at least three plants in bloom at any given time through the entire growing season. 
I'm not talking about the same plant. I'm talking about the succession of bloom from early spring through late fall. And so when we think of early spring, a lot of those plants are going to be woody. Where I am, one of our first blooming plants, and people may not think of this as a blooming plant, is red maple. And it's an early source of nectar to some early emerging pollinators. Now, only some tough pollinators can get out when it's that chilly in March. Thinking about having that succession of bloom with floral targets and a diversity of plants through the entire growing season is absolutely essential without a gap. So really being thoughtful in our planning and understanding that climate change is having some really weird impacts and desyncing pollinators from their plants, what we call phenology, floral phenology, this the timing of a flowering and pollinator activity. We need to start being way more thoughtful and sourcing out plants that start blooming really, really early and really, really late. You know, the middle part is kind of the easy part, you know, in the growing season, but these extreme times are really important for pollinators and most landscapes aren't equipped to provide resource. Great. Now, I thought in the few minutes remaining, I would put you on the hot seat if you don't mind (laughs) and throw some questions at you. I polled some bird harger listeners before our talk today and I asked them what problems are they're facing when trying to create a pollinator garden or an area of the yard devoted to pollinators. So... I'll give you the first one here. Okay. Every two years, the utility companies come down our street and cut down all the trees that grow near the power lines. This year, they cut down my linden trees, which are big pollinator trees. What can I do to negotiate with the utility companies to protect the rest of my trees? That's a challenging question for a horticulturist and an ecological landscape designer. (laughs) (laughs) Honestly, I think you should like really raise this at the municipal level and get more people engaged so you've got more firepower. Yeah, the municipality ultimately has got to start figuring out that some of these longstanding practices are incredibly harmful to the environment and do way more harm than good. Right. Okay, here's another one. We live next to a school and the janitor there sprays a lot of pesticides in the schoolyard. We are getting pesticide drift in our yard. What can my partner and I do to protect our pollinators? Well, scary thought that it's a schoolyard, so presumably there are children around. So I think it's time to do a little research with organizations like Beyond Pesticides and find out some of the data about uh, pesticide impact on children, (laughs) not just pollinators really give them a good scare with that one. You know, my book is dedicated to Rachel Carson, the author of Silent Spring in the early 60s. And, you know, I believe very, very strongly that a pollinator garden, hey, any garden, any landscape should be pesticide free, period, end of story. It's time to, you know, wake some folks up at the school, really share the information with them, I think, to get a stop to this. Right. And then the final one is, The pressure to conform with the rest of the neighborhood is so overwhelming for us. My husband and I argue a lot about whether to mow the lawn and if we should even have a lawn. How do you overcome longstanding tradition and peer pressure? Well, fortunately, there's a a wonderful researcher, Joan Iverson Nassauer, who did research. She's been doing research for several decades on what we call or what she termed cues to care, showing intent in the landscape to demonstrate to neighbors that you are actually managing your landscape and you are caring for it. So ways that we can have more naturalistic landscapes, but also show cues to care 
are through simple things like signage, having one of those pollinator habitat signs at the end of your driveway, having some edges, kind of neat defining areas of uh, the landscape using either, say, stones or Belgian block or mowed edges or something that demonstrates that your landscape is being intentionally managed. But as far as the uh, lawn is concerned, I mean, I've already kind of made that point is, you know, keep what you use, lose the rest. Um, Lawn is a wasteland. And sorry, folks, but if you just don't mow it in May, it really doesn't count for much because just not mowing, it's not a substitute for being a steward of your own landscape. The one area that you can manage in a way that promotes pollinator health, wildlife health, and your health as a human being, the uh, the health of folks around you. So we need to do more than just not mow. Turf grass, the vast majority of grasses in turf grass, you know, except for maybe red fescue are non-native. The weeds that appear in turf grass are almost all non-native and not terribly useful, better than nothing. But we need to understand how much power that we have individually in terms of making change and being successful with it and seeing the results of our efforts in changing our landscapes to native supportive ones. It's absolutely profound what the difference is when you have you know, the traditional American landscape versus a native landscape that's pesticide free. I mean, all you have to do is walk outside and see what's going on, the activity in that landscape. So using cues to care, getting charged up, trying to get neighbors on board with you is a really good idea. And, you know, just really having a positive outlook about this because it's just such a happy experience. My favorite thing is when my clients send me photos of what's going on in their landscape and the amount of activity that they have now that they've converted. It's empowering. I'd like to thank Kim Ironman for joining us today. You can find out more about Kim and her work by going to her website at ecobeneficial.com. Her book is available from amazon.com, the Barnes & Noble website, and indiebound.org. Join Americans everywhere in the one-third for the birds movement. Dedicate the back third of your yard to birds and other wildlife. Make this area a quiet zone with no leaf blowers or lawnmowers. Plant native trees and shrubs so birds have plenty of insects to eat. Create a safe haven for birds to nest and raise their young. You will be rewarded with many hours of bird watching fun. For more information on one-third for the birds, go to the Bird Hugger page on Facebook. And that's it for today's episode, everybody. Thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Have a great week and enjoy the birds. Bye for now. Bye for now.